Okay, good morning again. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, uh, you can open them to Acts chapter 4, which is where we are going to spend our time. We're using the NIV translation today. The uh, words will come up behind me as well, uh, so you can follow on uh, on the screen as well. Uh, but I always want to encourage you and rec- recommend to, to bring a Bible along, whether it's paper or whether it's digital, I prefer, I go for paper personally, it's really important to be able to follow us along and also as like maybe I throw out a verse, you can always go and check that that is actually right, <laughs> I'm just making something up. So it's, it is important to equip ourselves to bring along uh, your Bible uh, to Sunday mornings. Okay, uh, so last week it was great hearing Jovin uh, preach uh, and he spoke uh, from Acts chapter 3, uh, really about this incredible, incredible healing at the gates beautiful of this man who was at least 40 years old, could have been older, uh, who had not walked uh, since he was um, from birth. And suddenly, after Peter and John tell him to get up, he is able both to walk, and there's this this double kind of miracle happening here, of both his legs, he, he becomes healed, but also instantly he learns how to walk. And for those of us who have been kids, which I'd suggest is most of us, and those of us that have kids, you will know that it's a process. But actually, with God, all things are possible. And there's this double amazing miracle that happens. And of course, if that happened in Nordstan, like, or Brunsparken, uh, like Jobin suggested last week, what would happen is a crowd would gather. This was a man that they had seen year after year at the same place. They recognised him, and perhaps we know someone similar who you'd recognise. think I've seen that person in a similar place begging. And so, because he's been healed, there's this big crowd that gathers, and they're like, wow, this is amazing, what's going on here? And so Peter uses the opportunity to explain what has happened. A little bit like he does at Pentecost, when everyone looks like, people are thinking, are they drunk? What's going on? Peter says, no. It's the power of God. It's the Holy Spirit has fallen. And again here, in Acts chapter 3, people are looking around thinking, what's going on? There's a guy who we've always seen on the floor. Suddenly he's walking. What's happening? It's the power of God at work. Peter uses the opportunity to explain. It's the power of God. God, Jesus, who you crucified, God raised. And he's alive, and he's an authority, and he's exalted. And he's powerful, and that means that people who haven't been able to walk all their life suddenly can walk. Because they're healed by the power of God. And as, as he's speaking, as he's giving this incredible message about who Jesus is, about what you did, the authorities drag him off stage. So literally, at the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4, what we see is Peter is almost mid-sentence and people come to drag him off stage. You can imagine if it happened when someone was preaching or, you know, it, I mean, it's crazy, it's crazy scenes. Um, and he gets dragged off to jail. And what we're going to be looking at today is what happens next. He's been dragged off stage. He's no longer allowed to speak. What happens? He's been thrown in jail. Him and him and John. What happens next? So let's read uh, chapter four, verse one. The first four verses to start with. 
uh, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. In this short section, we see two responses. And it's really important that we understand this, because these two responses lay a foundation, a pattern that happens still to this day. Some people hear the good news of Jesus, that he is God, that he is resurrected, that he's alive, and they respond well. And they receive Jesus. And we saw, I think, in number two, Acts chapter two, they, they repent and they are baptised and they believe in Jesus. It's a good response. About 5,000 men responded in that way. Now, whether that's on top of the 3,000 from earlier, whether that's men and women, it's a little bit unclear. But what is clear is it's 5,000 which is a great response to the Gospel. On the other side, there's people who don't like it. And again, that's the same today. Some people respond positively when the Gospel is preached. Some people respond negatively when the Gospel is preached, when Jesus is proclaimed. Um, the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection, are obviously upset because Peter is saying that Jesus is now alive, we believe in the resurrection, and so they gather a group of leaders to take them off. So there's this negative response to what Peter and John are saying. It's the first real signs of opposition since Jesus was killed. Slowly, opposition, anger is starting to come into the story. People aren't necessarily happy with what Peter is saying. In fact, we read here that they were greatly disturbed. In the ESV it says they were annoyed. Uh, in other translations it says exasperated or they were vexed, which when I was growing up, working in South London was like a cool word to say, you are, I'm vexed blood, I'm vexed, I'm vexed. Okay, they were angry. They were not happy because Peter was teaching that Jesus is alive and so they get thrown in jail as a result so let's read on the next day verse 5 the rulers the elders and the teachers of the law met in jerusalem annas the high priest was there and so was caiphas and john and alexander and others of the high priest's family they had peter and john brought before them and began to question them by what power or what name did you do this? Now we've got a picture uh, behind me of the Sanhedrin. When I first read this and was imagining what it meant for Peter and John, I imagined like a court scene in like a TV series, like Suits or something like that, you've probably seen, where they're just kind of like, you know, there's people, there at the front and there's people looking at them, um, you know, it's a separation. The reality is that the Sanhedrin, where they met, was much, much different, and it was a very intense situation. It looked a lot more like this. Peter and John were kind of in the middle of a semicircle, so it wasn't like this. It would have been more, okay, like this. So they, and, and straight away, I'm not giving that everyone, doesn't it? 
All right, and that, that's, that's, that, that's what was going on for them. They were put in the middle of this group of men who were extremely powerful. 71 elders, leaders, teachers of the law, people who are working their way up the ranks, members of the high priest family, have Anas, Caiaphas. Anas was the high priest, now Caiaphas is the high priest. It's a very scary situation for Peter to be in. You can imagine having this amazing day behind you. I think we can also understand that you have this amazing day. God's at work. You're preaching. People are responding. And suddenly you wake up in jail. I mean, we probably can't. So many people can understand that. But actually, the good and suddenly going so difficult, so negative. You're standing in front of the Sanhedrin. And you can bet that Peter would have been looking around and thinking, it's all going down, it's all going down, <laughs> anything else? And you can bet that Peter was looking around thinking, I recognise this, I've been here before. You see, just weeks before, he was there before. And you read in Matthew 26, verse 57, this is where it's good to have your Bibles, it's not on the screen. Those who arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. Peter had seen this before. He wasn't in the middle, he was at a distance. But he'll be remembering, he'll be looking around, recognising Annas, Caiaphas, other guys that were there for the trial of Jesus. And he'll be remembering what happened in that trial. And he'll be remembering the outcome, the reality that there was, there was no real evidence for Jesus and there was just lies, false testimony, until eventually Jesus himself had to say, I'm God. And they put him to death. And he'll be remembering that. And then suddenly he finds himself in the centre where Jesus was those weeks before, standing with the Sanhedrin, all around him. It is an incredibly scary situation for someone who denied Jesus to a servant girl. After witnessing the Sanhedrin, what happened with Jesus, he was asked by a servant girl, Do you, do, don't you know? And he denied three times, and then the rooster crowed, didn't they? He'll be remembering that. He'll be remembering that after that they beat, spat, mocked Jesus. And he'll be remembering that. What would he have been thinking in this time? And as they challenge him with this question about what happened just the day before, what power, in whose name did you do this? How did this happen? He'll be probably remembering again Luke 20 where they ask Jesus, the same question, what power, what name are you doing this in? So how, how will this man respond that denied Jesus? Will he deny like he did? Will he dilute? Will he kind of make an excuse? Accident. Wasn't looking like just said it and it happened. What is he going to say? Well, let's read on. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, 
if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Rulers, leaders, you crucified Jesus. This is not the same Peter as of just a few weeks ago. This is not denying, diluting Peter. There is something that has fundamentally changed in Peter. He is now not denying Peter. He is speaking powerfully, authoritatively. You crucified, and he's looking at the people, probably in the eye, who literally crucified Jesus. This is now not a general to the thousands crowd. You, because of your sin, because of your foolish mistakes, you killed Jesus. This is a very specific, you literally killed, you crucified this man. What has changed? And we realise the difference in verse 8, when Luke puts, not just Peter said... But Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said. This is the fulfilment of Acts 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses. This is this happening. Jesus says it's going to happen. They receive power, and as verse 8, as Peter speaks, filled with the Holy Spirit, what happens? Power comes. Dynamis is the Greek word. It's where we get our word dynamite from. This isn't just like a Peter kind of saying, well, you kind of, you, you, you maybe, possibly, accidentally, probably killed, accidentally crucified Jesus. This is a powerful moment of the Holy Spirit falling in power and then Peter responding by saying, you crucify. There's massive boldness here, there's massive courage here. Why? Because Peter has been on a self-help course? No. Because he has been filled with power from on high. You will receive power from on high, Jesus said. You killed him. It's the power of God working in very ordinary people. We'll read in a minute, unschooled, ordinary. Friends, we ask ourselves the question again that we've reflected on. How are we doing in this? Are we relying on our own power? Are we relying on our own wisdom? The fact that we are schooled? The fact that we are extraordinary? I want to suggest that the birth of the early church took place not because there was a bunch of men and women who were wise, powerful, clever, schooled, but because of those God in all authority, sending his dynamis, his power, onto very normal, ordinary, unschooled people, very much like me and you, Peter's and John's. That's how the early church got started. That's how thousands came to know. That's how Peter's able to speak in this incredibly scary situation. Because dynamis comes. There's a, there's a power moment here. And so we must... Reflect, how are we doing in this? Are we relying on the power of the Spirit in our lives? God is moving us in the city, in different places. It's great to see people get 
different work, different accommodation, just moving around the city. As, as the grand chess player moves us into different positions, are we then relying on our own power? Or are we saying, Holy Spirit, fill me as I live my life. Fill me as I look after my children. Fill me as I spend time at work. Your power at work in me, ordinary, unschooled, ordinary, but filled. And the reality is that we live in very, very secular environments. All of us do. Some of the stories that Nina comes back home and tells me about are, it's just crazy, some of the stuff, some of the views. And we maybe think that's different to what it was 2,000 years ago. The reality, it isn't. Corinth was a crazy city. And so in those secular environments that are scary. It is scary to say, I'm a Christian. This is what I believe. This is what I think about sex. This is what I think about marriage. This is what I think about leadership. This is what I think about church. This is what I do on a Sunday morning. This is how I spend my money. This is how I serve. This is how I give my time. It's scary. And in those situations, what do we do? Do we rely on our own wisdom? Or do we rely on the power of God. Let's continue. Verse 11. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. You killed him, God raised him. Again, Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4. Peter says the same thing, which is a good thing, but we often say the same thing. Because we need to hear the same thing. That you killed him, God raised him. He's alive. And so I hope as we preach through series and, and go from Acts to Kings to Revelation to Chronicles. I hope that there'll be one thing you'll be hearing every Sunday. Jesus is alive. It's all about Jesus. It's not a bad thing for repetition. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You killed him. God raised him. God accomplished what he set out to do, even though you tried to shut him down. Even though in this court just weeks ago you said, let's get him to a, onto a cross, let's, let's kill him. Even though you tried to shut him down, God achieved his purposes. Who you killed, God raised. He is alive. And we see that as, as 5,000, beginning of chapter 4, 5,000 get added. Even that is, that's God at work, even as early opposition comes. Okay, they're getting dragged off. And Peter's like, come follow it, let me be, repent, be baptised, Jesus loves you. And people are like, yeah, I want to I do that. I want to get arrested. <laughs> Realising that Jesus is so much greater than anything else. And so despite opposition, there's this beautiful moment of being dragged away and then thousands responding to the gospel. God is at work even though man is trying to shut him down. Jesus has won. That's what Peter's saying. 
And this, this story of the lame beggar in, in at the temple, the gate, beautiful, it's a signpost. What's that all about, this healing? It's a signpost of a greater glory to come. It's a signpost of a reality that now Jesus is alive. He now has authority, which means that people who have never walked and people who, yeah, have never walked or whatever illness they have can suddenly get healed because he has authority over sickness and death and everything. And this, this healing is just a signpost of, of that. This Jesus. This Jesus. And he says, you rejected him. You Sadducees, you, you rulers of the law, you, you teachers of the law, you, you rejected him. You were so busy building your own thing, making sure that everything was weighed out correctly, every tithe was weighed out, every, every law, every, every I was dotted, every T was crossed, every law was just perfect. You were building your law-based thing, and in so doing you rejected one who came to free you from the law, to fulfill the law. As you're building, you're only building. And as we, as we live in this just wonderful city that perhaps with the rain doesn't look quite so beautiful, but I just love, love this city. Really do. It's just such a beautiful place to live. Wonderful place. You, it, it, there's a real reality that we're living in a city that is exciting and there's building going on and it's developing and people are moving into this city. And I'm excited to see what happens in the future here. And I, I, I challenge you to walk or drive or tram more than like a kilometre, two kilometres, and not see something being built. It's everywhere. And what you'll notice is that Gothenburg generally is built on very soft land. And so they need to make sure, more than ever, that foundations are right. So they have this big metal, I don't know the term for them, massive metal things that pump into the ground and then they have these concrete pillars that they chuck in the ground. They make the ground, the foundation, very, very strong before they build. Now they haven't always done that. And so you'll go into central Gothenburg and you'll see there's quite a few buildings that are actually not perfectly straight, but they're a little bit like this. In fact, if you go to Eric's apartment and you put a tennis ball on the floor, it will roll <laughs> to the other side of the apartment um, because it is slowly kind of going like this. So it's not always been like that. In ancient first century Jerusalem, they would have used cornerstones. They would have used this big stone that was straight and square and put in perfectly to get every, uh, to, to, to set the foundation for the rest of the building. A little bit like what our builders are using, this big pile, you know, they're setting the foundation strong. They would have used cornerstones. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, talking about the church, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Jesus is the cornerstone. In him, everything else rises together to become a holy temple for the Lord. What's our temptation in this? Our temptation is to build alone. Our temptation is to think, how do we build? If only we 
change scripture to make it more palatable. If only we just focus on community and just bringing everyone in. If only we show the benefits. And you can have meals if you have a baby. Our temptation is to build on good ideas. And some of those things aren't bad ideas. I actually think having meals when you have a baby is a fantastic idea. But if we start to think that they are our cornerstone, they are what we are getting everything from. This is, this is who we are, good first. The church that gives away meals. Then we're going very, very wrong. We must watch how we build. You see, if we start to have all our own good ideas, then we are at risk of doing the same thing that the Sadducees did and the Pharisees did and the teachers of the law did and reject the stone that has become the cornerstone. As we look to build our own little empire, no, we risk rejecting Jesus at the want of being more palatable, at the want of people liking us, accepting our views. Friends, we do have different views because we have a different king. We're members of a different kingdom. We are kingdom people. And that means sometimes we will say things that people do not like. How we build is so, so important. And Paul again in Corinth, this city that, yeah, was crazy, full of sex, full of other gods, on a, on a trade route, lots of different nations, lots of things happening in Corinth. What does Paul do when he builds there? What does Paul, Paul do when he plants there? A guy who was incredibly clever, incredible knowledge, Pharisee of the Pharisees, real clever guy. He says this in 1 Corinthians, by the grace of God he has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold or silver or costly stones or good ideas or community or meals for free, then their work will be shown for what it is. Friends, we build on Jesus, the cornerstone. Paul chose Christ. We read a little bit uh, later, I resolve to know nothing, Paul says, except Christ and Christ crucified. This is all I'm building on, is Christ. And the take home for us in this, build well. What are you building on? Who are you building on? There's a take home for us as a church. Are we doing well in this? Are we focusing on Jesus, the cornerstone? Are we building, are we getting our angles and... Are we building from him? Or are we building from good 21st century ideas on how to grow a church, for example? And us as individuals, are we getting our direction, our straightness, our vision from Jesus or from good ideas? Friends, build well. He is the foundation. Growing up uh, in church in the UK, I don't know if you guys had this song, but we used to sing a song which went, don't build your house on the sandy land, don't build it too near the shore, oh it might look kind of nice but you'll have to build it twice, you're going to have to build your house once more, and he goes this, gotta build your house on a rock, 
amazing song. I can still remember it-ish, kind of. And obviously it's coming from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he spoke about this wise and foolish builder building on either a rock wisely or on sand. And as the storm came, the, the, the house gets washed away. And he's talking about, are you build, who are you building on? Are you building on sand? Because you'll get washed away. A catchy song. I'm going to ask Al if we can start leading, doing what in worship. A catchy song, but it's got a real truth to it. It's coming from Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. Where are you building? On sand or on rock? And the reality is that we live in a smurgos board culture. Yeah, we take, kind of take a little bit of everything. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you are nice. That, there are, that, that Christianity is, is a route to salvation. Be, love people, be nice. It's kind of a route to salvation. It's maybe even the best route to salvation. Jesus is clear you build your house on the rock or you build your house on the sand. Salvation is found in no one else except Jesus. And so we build on Jesus. He is our route to salvation. We build on him or we get washed away. Let's read on. Verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, there it is, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who has been healed standing with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they had performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further, we must warn them. Speak no longer to anyone in this name. The name of Jesus is what they should have said. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all people were praising God for what had happened. The man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Peter not only speaks in extreme pressure in the Sanhedrin, but he's also willing to go outside in the midst of threats. These guys don't speak about him. Don't speak about him. Remember what we did to Jesus. Don't speak about him. Peter is willing to go out and speak about him. Be a witness. He could not help himself but speak about the greatest thing he has ever seen. The pearl of great price. Jesus Christ. We can't help but, about, uh, we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. And Jesus, as we look to finish today, Jesus has called us to be storytellers. He's not called us to be dazzling and wonderful and incredibly intelligent and wise and be able to answer every apologetic, like be able to answer every question, be brilliant at apologetics. 
He's called us to be storytellers. He has called us to do something. Witness. Tell. So we don't just stand at a distance like Peter. But we get involved. We're bold. We're courageous. And it's not always going to be easy. Sometimes I'm my own worst enemy. I'm lazy. I think it's actually easier just to not say anything. Other times, perhaps maybe say something and someone might laugh or mock or disagree. Be angry. Friends, we need to be bold. And next week, we're going to have a Sunday where we talk a little bit about what the church do in terms of response to opposition as they pray for boldness. And then we're going to pray next week for boldness. We're going to do that. But friends, let's be a people who are bold and are willing to tell our story. Willing to talk about who Jesus was. Willing to be able to say, just like Peter did, you know what? You can threaten me. I hear that. I get that. But I just can't help it. I found a love that is just so great. I was searching for so many different things. And then I found Jesus. Or more like he found me. My eyes were open to Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. Peter made his choice. He was put in the Sanhedrin for a reason. We are put wherever we are for a reason. To love the people. How do we best love the people? Witness. Tell people about Jesus. Be filled to build. Be filled with the Spirit so we can build on Jesus.